QZ Theology with Chris Green. Well, thank goodness, after, after a while, we've got the, got the crew back together. So, good to see you guys, Bill, David, Chris. Good to be here. Good to be back with y'all. Um, as a friend of mine and Chris's reminded me of the, the other day, we were both together and he was saying bye to both of us. He said, bye, Chris. And then he looked at me and he was like, wait, what do we call you? Christopher the Lesser, I think. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we have put a little bit, we've not dropped the uh, Colossians, um, the Colossians thread. We are going to keep doing that. In fact, I think very soon you're going to see uh, listeners, you'll be able to hear a conversation with Chris and Jordan Daniel Wood, and then we'll we'll jump on and do some more stuff. But given that this week is Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday, just a few days away, we're we thought we would go ahead and have a conversation about that. So, looking forward to it. Good to be back together. Yeah, yeah. And our plan, right, is to just do as we were discussing beforehand. We're just going to keep recording until the spirit falls. That's right. Yeah. We're gonna we're, we're gonna, gonna tarry together in this in this chat in this recording, so should be good. Let's do this. The problem with this as a strategy, just to be clear, is that when somebody downloads the podcast episode, it tells them how long the episode is, <laughs> so they will know in advance. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can just know that this episode was hours and hours long, and it was it was only cut. In editing. So That's right. we redacted it. Like, you know, obviously Luke doesn't tell us everything that happened in the upper room. Right. <laughs> he just cuts it down to size, right? Like that like all they were doing was praying when we know good and well. They weren't just praying. Like who knows what kind of silly conversations they got up to. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, it is true. It is true. I think so, by Acts by Acts twelve, I think we're at forty four AD. So somewhere between Acts two and Acts twelve, like fifteen years passed. So yeah, that is a maybe there's a lot of editing happened. <laughs> yeah, that's actually really funny. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> that's why Luke. I mean, for those who are Bible scholar, Bible scholar nerds, like that. That's a kind of running joke about Luke, right? Is that he tells you right up front. I'm going to give you an orderly account. And the subtext is all those other jokers have been writing other accounts that are so disorderly, and <laughs> but I'm going to come along. I want to clean up this mess. Right. You know, in other words, if you were in charge of our podcast, there, there wouldn't be a podcast like that. That sounds a lot like your uh, <laughs> very polite way of telling somebody that they were wrong, where you say, okay, I hear you. But the way I would say it is, <laughs> and it's just like the most polite backslap every time happens to me weekly by you. So I appreciate that's, it. That's what a British education gets you. The ability to insult <laughs> in the way it sounds like a compliment. <laughs> it's also how you get 23 years of marriage. <laughs> conversation. That's another conversation. All right, let's, let's start with the text. Bro. Where, what are we starting with? I was going to ask you guys, what do y'all want to start with? Well, you have to start with Acts 2, right? I mean, as yeah, I guess we're... Cradle, cradle Pentecostals, mm-hmm. they, we have to start there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Well, preachers, what do y'all... 
What are y'all thinking for X2? All right, let me let me be the rebel of the group. I'm going to ask Chris Green a question to start us off here, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> after after all of that deliberation of where we're going to start in in John 7:39, <laughs> it says the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So before we start talking about the Spirit being given, mm. what are what are some of the thoughts you have, Chris, on? Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What is, what, what is, why is John framing the giving of the spirit that way? Yeah. I mean, a a couple of, a couple of thoughts to kind of initiate the conversation. There's so much to say here, right? I mean, and I don't want to reduce what John is down, what John is doing down to these two points. But I, I think first, and most explicitly, John is identifying the the outpouring of the Spirit or the coming of the Spirit with the lifting up of Jesus, Jesus being lifted up on the cross, Jesus being lifted up into the glory he had with the Father before the world began, and identifying that as the event of the cross. Right. So I think John is drawing together all of Jesus ministry into the event of the cross into his hour so like all of god's eternal work and cosmic work on creation is telescoped or microscoped into the hour into this this event and and so when we're talking about him being lifted up you know it is coming to share in the father's glory not just in his agonies on the cross in his being buried, in his being raised to life. All of that belongs to the hour, at least on my reading. And then secondly, that in John's gospel, time does not work linearly and successively. And our accounts, our our Christologies and soteriologies, our atonement theories, we, we tend to try to find out how do we f- put this onto a single timeline in which one thing follows another, follows another, follows another. And, and so we end up saying, well, the spirit has not come yet on this timeline because Jesus is not yet dead and buried and raised to life and ascended. And, and therefore, we, we come away with arguments like the spirit was on people before Jesus, but is in them after Jesus. So that the saints of old are not filled with the spirit. They're just anointed with the spirit. We get these kinds of fine distinctions. You see this everywhere in early Pentecostal theology, right? That, and, and not just early, but it, it kind of begins there with these kind of distinctions between the spirit. You know, Charles Parham, for example, will make a distinction between the spirit being on someone and being in someone, being anointed in the spirit, being born again of the spirit and being filled with the spirit or baptized in the spirit. All of these things end up, having almost technical meanings in order to fit them on a timeline into some successive order. But I don't think that's John's point at all. I think the spirit is not somehow restricted until after Jesus acts because there is no after for God, right? God is the before and after. So the spirit is already, if we're thinking in terms of timeline, the spirit has always already been coming but we aren't able to identify that spirit as the spirit of the, the one who's lifted up in the wilderness. 
until Jesus' work is accomplished, right? So Jesus, what's happening in the events of Jesus' life is that's what's constituting reality. It's making all things what they are, including the past. So that, that's where I would begin. I don't, I don't think it all reduces to those points, but I think those are the, those are kind of the initial points that have to be made to start to get at what John is doing. Well, I mean, Bill, that kind of goes, that sort of jumps right into what, before we started the call and we were chatting a little bit about the numbers text. I mean, sorry, sorry to do this, <laughs> to both not get to Acts and to bring something up that Bill was like, no, nah, no, I'm not going to bring it up. Let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, but the, by the time we're done, like seven hours from now, before we start editing, we will never have touched Acts 2. Like, yeah. that's, that's what this is going to turn into. And then it'll turn out that we only have touched Acts 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, ask you questions. Sorry. In, well, it was, it was just from numbers. Yeah, I mean, you go ahead, Bill. You say go it. Go ahead, Chris. You do it. I said I well, wasn't going to do it. You do it. <laughs> from numbers 11, which is the Old Testament, uh, which is the Old Testament text, there's this interesting sort of, um, you know, Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 elders of the people, they placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and some of the spirit, italicized that, took and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. And then by the time you get to the end of this passage, just a few verses later, Moses saying to them, would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so, I mean, Bill can clarify this for me, depending on how badly I butcher this, but at the very least he was just pointing out this kind of some of the spirit, but then the spirit is poured out in entirety. I mean, that's that, that isn't actually, I mean, in whatever it means for God's endless life to be poured out in entirety, right, in Acts 2. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what what would you say to that, Chris, given what you just said about John and that kind of linear? Yeah, so I, I think Numbers 11 is, a fa- is fascinating in that what's being shared there is Moses' spirit, not God's. Right, yeah, well, and what we have to his is- credit, Bill actually did make that point. Okay. I did not make it clear, but he said that. Yeah, I mean, that's, and it's it's critical to what plays out in the text, right, that Moses is sharing of his own spirit. It's Moses' spirit that's being shared. And this mm-hmm. this is why for Jews and Christians, and perhaps for Muslims too, I'm not, I'm not familiar with Islamic theology on this point, but for Jews and Christians, this is why ordination is, begins with this story of Moses sharing his spirit as the one who wants everyone to receive God's spirit. You know, so in that exchange at the end, he says to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Like, are you worried about my standing, my reputation? Are you worried that I'm going to run out of spirit by sharing it with too many people, which does seem to be Joshua's concern, right? That you've got the 70 elders, Plus these two, Eldad and Medad, who are prophesying in the camp, have broken the rules, essentially, are outside the bounds of what was prescribed. And yet they're speaking in tongues. And although the elders around the tent have ceased to be prophesy, then 
these two in the camp are still babbling. You know, they're still, again, prophesying, which in, in Luke in terms is what's happening whenever you speak in languages, right? You're, you're prophesying, you're declaring the word of God, either to God or from God to the world. And Joshua seems to be anxious that Moses is going to run out of the supply of spirit that he's been given. And Moses' response is, why are you jealous for my sake? What I wish is that everyone was a prophet and were, and were filled, and each one of us was filled with God's spirit. Mm-hmm. And now I think the reason this is tied to ordination is that's what it means to be ordained. It means to be one who is able to share the spirit of humility upon which the spirit of God can rest. Right. So Numbers 12 identifies Moses as the meekest man in all the earth because he's not hoarding his spirit. He's not he's not worried about his spirit running out. And precisely as such, he is embodying in a human way the infinite humility of God whose spirit does not run out and therefore is not anxious about hoarding Mm. spirit. Right. So, I mean, that's, I think, a, a critical through line for Jews and Christians and then, of course, in Jesus, both of those things are embodied. Jesus' human spirit and the divine spirit are perfectly at one. That Jesus, the, the needs of Jesus' humanity and the needlessness of his divinity commune paradoxically. They, they commune it perfectly. And that, I think, prepares us for thinking about what Pentecost is. This is why Maximus will say that Jesus is Pentecost because he has he holds all this together right like and there he's just maximus is just reflecting on gregory's uh, pentecost homily that jesus is pentecost in full and it's that that gives all things their being so again this doesn't work on a timeline right this this does not wait this fullness is not um it, you know, unexperienced by people on the timeline before it comes, what they're experiencing is that fullness, even before it's happened, so to speak. Does that speak to your question? I'm not, maybe, maybe I sidestep. Oh, it's great. Bill's just, mad at, Bill's just mad at me for bringing it up. <laughs> you affirmed me, so I, I agree with it. <laughs> David, you're about it to wait. It opens up an interesting, an interesting angle, though. Just as you were saying that, Chris, it it, it strikes me how it's 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 a fundamentally recent way to think about things. That things can be infinite. The notion of things being infinite is not uh, something that humans historically have been overly comfortable with. And, and you see this a lot, particularly in in non-Western cultures, of of notions of like, like I'm thinking of the 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 whole kind of spectrum of honor and shame language that that when you give honor to another person, the reason that's quite complex is because most cultures live within a, a sort of notion of limited good. So when you give when you honor somebody, you are intrinsically taking some of your honor and giving it to them. So you when you honor somebody, what we mean is you just say nice things about them in a more ancient or less Western culture you are making a sacrifice of the honor that you have yourself. So Joshua's behavior is is very typical of what you would yeah, yeah, see course, yeah. in this mm-hmm. sort of context. But I, it struck me as you were saying that, that 
you know, hence, and Moses' response, like, wait a minute, what are you worried about here, Joshua? So Moses is really cutting an interesting line contextually. But I think you see this in Acts 2 and then Acts following, this question of, you know, almost of gatekeeping the Spirit. So I don't, even though I think how we would read Acts 2 is, oh, look, it's being poured out on all flesh. Even Peter cites Joel that it's poured out on all flesh. But you see Peter, even by chapter 10, is is kind of on the fence about whether Peter starts to sound almost more like Joshua by Acts 10 than mm-hmm. than uh, than by Moses. So so it's it just, I think it's an interesting thing to be alert to. And not missing the fact you've alluded to early Pentecostals already. I think there's a lot of gatekeeping of the spirit amongst early Pentecostalism as well. So maybe this is a sub narrative that we need to pay attention to whenever talking about the spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think that's right. Although I would say, I, I think there's that ancient kind of non-Western awareness of the finitude of our spirit is a crucial insight that we should not have lost. Like, Part of part of what makes modernity, Western modernity, diseased is that it doesn't own our our limitedness. It, it's not comfortable with the fact that we are not our own sources, or guides, or goals. Like I don't bring myself into being. I can't bring myself to fulfillment, and I'm I'm not even the principle of my own existence. Right to use the language that the Christian tradition will use. Like my essence and my existence are not identical. I, I depend upon others and ultimately depend on mystery that I, mm-hmm. that I either worship or refuse to worship, but I, I come into being and am held in being and, and, are, and I'm guided into the fullness of being by that, which is mysterious to me and remains mysterious mm-hmm. to me. And I think we tend to, to fret about that, to resist it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Joshua knows Moses you have limits. I mean, Moses himself is complaining to God in this text because he's saying, God, you've overtaxed me. Mm. Like, I, I'm not the mother of these people. You're the mother of these people. I'm just the wet nurse. And there are too many children here for me to nurse. Right. So Moses is very aware of his limits. And so is Joshua. The difference is, so, and they're both right. Moses is limited. Like, there are limits to what he can do. The difference is, Joshua wants him to preserve that in a way that establishes authority. And in Joshua's defense, that's precisely what Joshua should be thinking. Joshua's not worried about that for himself. He's worried about it for Moses. Yeah. Right? As, as Moses' champion and confidant, he should be looking out for Moses in that way. But Moses, what makes Moses Moses and sets the example for what it means to be women and men ordained of God is that Moses is not under any illusions that his, his, the the, the kind of plenitude of his spirit will sustain people. Mm. And, and that's, what's remarkable, right? Is that they both recognize limits. They, they both own those limits. Joshua rightfully reasonably says, let's be careful here about what you give away. And Moses says, Oh, that's not going to matter. Either the infinite one is going to care for us or we're, we're all doomed. And I'm not trying to posture myself as, as their, as their source. And th- that to me is what meekness and humility is. It's kind of recognizing I'm not that for anyone. I'm not that can't be that for anyone.
So I, I mean, I'm agreeing with you. I, I just think it's a it's a remarkable awareness that we seem to have lost. Like we, because we are not better acquainted with our own finitude and limit, mm-hmm. and more more at ease with recognizing that our spirits are not endless. Our spirits are not endlessly generative. Like we, I, I wor- let me put it like this: I worry that sometimes we smuggle in claims about ourselves by talking about the Holy Spirit that we're talking about the Holy Spirit empowering us. But really what we mean is everyone should have an endless supply of spirit. You should be able to, to kind of keep going and always have a word to say, always be present in the most life giving way. And to have the spirit means that I've somehow filled up my human spirit to overflowing. And that, that I think is a mistake. The point of having the Spirit's power in my life is not that I become superhuman, not that I become unlimited, not that I become, you know, capable of accessing a resource that never runs out. Like it, it should be, I it, the Spirit rests upon the peace I make with my finitude, the peace I make with my limits, and of recognizing what I can and cannot be for people. The Spirit works there. Yeah, I'd love to hear your response to see whether or not I'm making sense or not. Yeah, no, uh, that's yeah. I think we we are definitely saying the same thing. I, I think there there's a huge uh, kind of reveal really about the spirit in the Joel text that, that we we get quoted next to this notion of God not running out is. I think, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm processing what you were saying as as I'm talking. So forgive me for being slow to it. But, but I love. I think you put your finger exactly on the point that we don't want to face our own finitude. As a result, we struggle to contemplate or conceptualize the infinite nature of God. Right. <laughs> I think that's that's kind of maybe what I'm hearing a little bit. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and I, that's right. Yeah, I think part of what I'm pushing for there is we've got a kind of craving for limitlessness yes, and we resource the language of God to justify that craving. Yes. Yes, definitely. When really the wisdom of scripture is we should go in the other way. We should accept, make peace with our finitude, our limits, Mm -hmm. our capabilities, not being endless, right? Like we, we very much are people of beginnings and ends. Like there, there are boundaries to my capacities and my capabilities. Yeah. And I have to, you know, that line from the Psalms, your line, I think it's Psalms. It, now I'm thinking it might be in the prophets, but your lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Like knowing that the boundaries of my lives, the lines that determine my existence, mm-hmm. like the shorelines, right, for me, I have to be, I have to be at peace with that. And not not to, you know, in Pauline language, which you know so well, like not to kind of go over what has been allotted to me. Like we're not trying to build in someone else's field. Yeah. Like I, I'm at peace with, I'm not saying I am at peace. I'm saying I think we're called to be at peace with, with what we are. You know, this is what I've been allotted to be. And ironically, paradoxically, the more at peace we are with that limitedness, that you know, being what we are and not what we are not, that is the way in which the spirit who is all in all, it is truly infinite, can rest. Mm-hmm. 
on us. You know, I, I, that that's what I see happening in in Numbers eleven. And does that? Can I ask you a question back then, and then the other guys you may want to jump in is? But does that give you a step over to our John seven passage? Because because here you have something that feels much more comfortable to us as moderns. Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. This sounds like the, you, you, but it feels to me like there's a connection there with what you're saying to to prepare us to read John seven better now. Yeah, I think that's precisely what. Jesus is naming, right? That and and notice, like, and you guys might have talked about this before. I was able to jump on, but what is what is happening to Jesus, right? Becomes the condition for everyone, right? If you come to me and drink from me, out of you will flow rivers of water. Right? It, it's an odd. It especially when you when you juxtapose that with what he says to the woman to Fatini at the well, you know, if you drink what I give the water, I will give you, you'll never thirst again. That's, that's true. But here he's saying, if you drink from me, you become like the headwaters, not, not simply a well, not some, a well that springs up from the depths. I think that's true as well. But again, John is always layering, right? So there is a way in which we drink from Jesus and we're not thirsty. There's a way in which, we drink from Jesus and, and a well springs up within us. But there's another way in which to drink from Jesus is to become the headwaters of the Spirit of God, right? To become a place from which God flows to people. You, you become the opening of heaven for others, the, the place from which God's Spirit flows. And Paul, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, right? Like, who is sufficient for this task? Like we're not able to bear the work of the gospel for your sake. You see our weakness and you think that means we're illegitimate. And the truth is we are illegitimate in, in the ways you're measuring legitimacy. The truth is we are incapable. We, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, but precisely because we are at peace, we don't hide our faces precisely because we are at peace with what we are not and what we cannot be precisely because we are comfortable in our own skin, so to speak, out of us can flow the God of all comfort. And like the paradox there is Paul is never pretending to be more for them than he can actually be precisely because he's never pretending. The authenticity allows the, the infinite spirit to erupt from within. He becomes the headwaters of the coming of the kingdom of God. And that, Somehow, I think we've got that kind of turned inside out and upside down, where we think ministry is about being omnicompetent and superhuman and able to rise above everything and do more than anyone else could do. And, of course, that just ends up leading to burnout and confusion, or arrogance, despair, like every possible catastrophe spins out from that. I mean, look at John 4. <clears throat> where he talks about the river of living water that, you know, you'll never have to drink again. And the response is, give me this water so I don't have to come here again. And that whole encounter happened because Jesus was tired. The whole encounter happens because he's wearied from his journey and he's tired. Yeah. Right. And then when you look at the time that water actually came out of his, <laughs> like water actually came out of him, he was yeah. dead. Yeah. 
he was dead when water actually came out of him. And then if you look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, this is obviously Paul's been filled with the Holy Spirit by this point, And he's saying we were burdened beyond we were, we were burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. Like he's giving this testimony about life after his conversion, after being filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about essentially how the Spirit didn't stop fatigue and, and those things, but it converted how he thinks about them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so in all, of, in all of those instances, like people that we say were mightily filled with the Spirit, Jesus himself rivers of life coming out of us like to to put that in a cruciform shape is the opposite of thinking the spirit makes me superhuman and it gives me the energy that i wouldn't otherwise have it it almost teaches us to live differently in the same limitations we had before it yeah it just gives us a a new a new category to think about life's normative ebbs and flows and i'm even thinking about in terms of the authority that people walk around with, with the Holy spirit or want to walk around with the, with the Holy spirit, you know, when Jesus is confronted about his authority, you know, where'd your authority come from? He immediately retorts with John's baptism. Was it from God or from man? And I thought there's so many different things he could have asked to say, if you answer me, I'll answer you. But I think it's interesting that he chose baptism because they're asking about authority. And he, in response to a question about authority, brings up baptism. And I think it's a real like warning shot slash revelation to say the kind of authority that I want you walking in is a submerged in humility kind of authority. Mm-hmm. It's an authority synonymous with my baptism, which is both Jordan River and Good Friday. Any other kind of authority is being called into question by that authority. So whether it's the desire to be superhuman in terms of our energy or, or the desire, you know, like it says in Aladdin to have, uh, you know, limitless cosmic power. I just watched Aladdin with my daughter, That's why <laughs> which ironically, he says phenomenal cosmic power, but then itty bitty living space, which is true, which is very true with what that pursuit does to you. And then the final thing I'll say is even thinking about faith. Cause I think we've used faith the same way that we use the spirit. Like faith is the way that I usurp time and process. And, you know, in faith, I could just jump to the miracle. And then Jesus likens faith to a mustard seed. And we, we focus on the size part of that yeah. uh, parable, but I think we never focus on the fact that he likens faith to a seed. He likens faith to something that takes a long time to grow, that moves very, very slowly that is susceptible to the uh, circumstances and weather and other people's input and cultivation. And so I think when you put all this together, it's not taking us, it's, it's helping us to not deny reality, but view reality for with a new category. Yeah. And this man, I Bill, that's, that's such a helpful way to put it. And I, I want to try here to, bring some nuance and some intricacy into the conversation specifically about the longing for the spirit, because I I do think there's a way in which the desire for God, this 
this hunger to draw close to God, to experience God, to share in God's life. I do think that is something that is right and good, but as with anything else, it can easily go wrong. And there's a way in which people who are, who've kind of had experiences of God, been drawn into the mystical, it awakens in them compassion. I mean, if it's genuine experience of God, it awakens compassion. It awakens sensitivity to need. It awakens imagination to possibilities for change. It, it makes us, I think, keener in our sensitivities to beauty and goodness and truth, but also to ugliness and lies and, and, and all that evil is doing in the world. And from that place, it's easy to see needs we think we need to meet then. Right? Like to be sensitized by the experience of God and by the desire for God, it's easy to, and I think this is what happens, for example, with David. Right, that he's after God. He's after God's heart in a sense. He's not just one whom God loves. He loves God and pursues God. And his, you know, his songs bear witness to this. But it leads to a place of overfamiliarity. I mean, I think I think that entire story about bringing the ark into Jerusalem is about this. Right? It, it involves presumption and overreach, and taking on burdens that are not yours to bear. And I think it might be good for us to kind of settle with that for a moment and talk about how do we discern that difference and are those differences I've been reading, I've been teaching and still teaching a, a class on the history of Pentecostalism. And I've been reading again, the diary of AJ Tomlinson, who was really the founding figure, at least the, the leading early figure for the church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. And he, he writes in one passage, I want to read just a bit of it. I want you to hear it in his own words. He's writing about his desire for God. So this is, I believe from 1911, but don't quote me on the year. It's 19 teens. No, it's 1913, 1913. And I'm just going to read a paragraph and, and then get, get your responses to it in terms of, how all of this is entangled, the right and the not so right uh, entangled together. After meeting at night, this is August 30th, 1913, had special prayer at our house every morning, a little past nine last week, Thursday morning, I became so desperate that I, I suppose I acted like I was beside myself. I fell into a spirit of agonizing prayer that lasted for more than an hour. I feel just like the gifts of the Spirit must be given in their fullness, or multitudes will be lost that otherwise might be saved. It seems I can hardly stand it. I am desperately desperate about it. Others are anxious, but it does seem like none is as desperate as I am. I feel rather lonely about the matter, but I must press on. I preach two sermons today with fairly good liberty, but it does not satisfy me. The folks are better satisfied with me than I am with myself. What to do, I don't know. I am troubled about the matter all the time. I must not stop here. I must have these gifts in their fullness. I must know I have them as well as I know I have the Holy Ghost. My heart is stirred. I pray God to stir me more and more until I can't rest day nor night without these wonderful 
manifestations. My heart goes out in agonizing cries, oh God, oh God, almost constantly. At least from where I'm standing, that that's a, a kind of whirlwind of something right and something not quite so right. But but I'd love to hear what, what you make of it. And not just that prayer, obviously. We're not psychoanalyzing him, but but kind of what that prayer stands for in our in our traditions. Yeah, I mean, I guess I hear obviously a desire. I'll qualify this in a moment, but a desire for the Lord and and a desire in such a way seemingly for the sake of others. Right. But yeah, yeah. there's that, that line about if we don't receive these gifts in their fullness, there will be many who were not saved who would have been. Yeah. Right. Who would have been otherwise. Right. But in that, I mean, there's not a settledness with his own or even a realization of his own limitations. Yep. Even in terms of reception and what, what he might make if he were to receive what he wants, what, what he might do with it. But also maybe there's a kind of, there is a real taking on of burdens that aren't his to take on. Yeah. Right. I mean, so that line betrays, I think something that is genuine and, <laughs> and good. Um, but it also betrays that he, he's taking that on in a particular way. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of, I mean, among other things, a lack of trust in in God's work, not just in his life, but in the lives of other people all around him, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I hear. I mean, there's like a, a couple of lines that really stood out to me was that I'm, I'm not able to rest and I don't want to rest. And there, there's a kind of desire for God. I, I mean, I do think we're, we're meant to be called up into God's life. We're meant to be transfigured and we're meant to be filled with the spirit. You know, that, that line, like if you, from the desert monks, if you desire, you can become all flame. You know, I, I, I think there is something about that. We don't want to denigrate like this, this kind of passion for God. And yet how, how does that hold together with compassion for others rather than, presuming that you you can be what they need you to, that you can always be what they need you to be or are always feeling restless you know uh, there's there's something about that restlessness that leaves me uneasy in what way so I, I think there's a I don't see that kind of restlessness like and and maybe i'm just not able to the the line is too fine for me but i think there is a hope is a virtue restlessness is not the same as longing 
right? There, there's a kind of craving that's not the same thing as desire. And restlessness, I think, is a sign of dissatisfaction with what is rather than a kind of delighted expectation in the more that God intends for us. Like, I don't know if you can say thanks from a place of restlessness. I think you can say thanks from a place of hope. And even from a place of, you know, as pilgrims who are on the move and from a place of longing, I think you can say thanks and God, thank you for what is and I long for what is to come. But restlessness, again, maybe I'm just thinking too narrowly, but I, I think restlessness is is an act of ingratitude. It, it, I don't know that you can be Eucharistic restlessly. But again, maybe I'm just dealing with an aspect of something and not seeing the other side of it. That's, that's entirely possible. I ask because I wonder if restlessness is a is an experience on the way to maturity and i say that because there's people there's there there are people like i'll, I'll even say like the people in, in my church community here that are so optimistic in such a toxic way that they're fine when they should not be fine. There's things going on around us, happening in the world, happening in our own church community here, happening in their actual lives, right? Mm. Where they should not be, uh, they should not have this pasted smile, this, you know, blessed and highly favored of the Lordness to them all the time. Like, I almost would love a season of restlessness that would lead towards a season of longing, a season of melancholy in the best sense. You know, something along those lines. So I wonder if like there's a there's a there's like a Christian optimism that is not healthy and that maybe restlessness is a disruption to that. And it could be an experience on the way to something more mature, like a holy longing. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's possible. I'm, I'm not sure we're describing the exact same thing, but I do think there are ways in which we can come you know, satisfied, badly satisfied with what is going on in our lives. You know, in the language of scripture, we can be at ease in Zion and we need something that, that moves us, right? Like God knocking us out of the nest, right? Like the mother bird who's forcing the, her, her eaglets to fly. I mean, yeah. I mean, if that's what you're describing, I think, yes, there is a kind of um, motionlessness or, you know, so Maximus talks about being able to rest while we are moving. Like we're, we can rest on the way. We haven't reached our destination. We're pilgrims. We know we've not reached our destination. And yet we remain at peace with the fact that we're not yet in Shalom. But we're, we're, I, I guess what I'm trying to describe is something more like an unnatural restlessness, right? an affliction mm -hmm. that is not an affliction that's taking us out of bad comfort, but making it so that we can't be at peace with who we are and what's happening around us. So, so maybe we are, you know, 
just talking about two different sides of the same experience. If on the one hand, I'm, I'm at ease in Zion, you know, I'm satisfied with the way my life is going because I like it and I don't want anything to change. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I, I would argue though that that means you're not really at rest. You're covering up your restlessness with this optimism, with this accumulating things. You're, you're narcotizing yourself to your real, the deep restlessness that's in you. And so you're buying bigger houses and building bigger barns and, you know, storing up more money in your IRAs because you're trying to stave off the real restlessness, which is fear of death, right? That's lurking underneath all of that. Um, but yeah, this is why I wanted to have a conversation because I don't want to, I don't want to shortchange anyone, and I don't want to cover over real differences that need to be honored and noticed. So, like when I hear like a famous line, like uh, "My heart is restless" or "Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you," I hear restlessness there used in a romantic way. Mm. I don't, Long I don't hear it as something. Yeah. I hear it as something romantic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Almost like a song of songs type line mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to like a confession of anxiety or something like that. Yeah. And, and insofar as that's what we mean, just longing or desire, I think that's absolutely essential to growth and essential to, to health. Definitely. Definitely. I'm, I guess I'm hearing though, in what Tomlinson is describing here, longing mixed with what I'm calling restlessness, like desire for God mixed up with, a craving for something that he ought not be craving. And I mean, that's all of us, right? I mean, all of our desires are mixed. So I, I'm not, again, singling him out for, for censure. So but an interesting question I would have is, so like take, take restlessness the way you're describing it. What, if that goes unchecked, how could that cause somebody to grasp at the Holy spirit in a negative way. So like that kind of restlessness and, and how, how could that cause somebody to reach out and want, you know, the Holy spirit, the gifts of the spirit, the power of the spirit, how could that cause, how could that make us use the spirit in a very bad way as, as opposed to receive the gift of the spirit? Like how, how could that go bad in terms of the means of grace and Christian things? Oh, I mean, I'm sure David and Chris got lots of examples of this too, but I think I've seen this many, 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 many times in my life, right? In which we try to access the power of the spirit to, to force a change into the, into our lives or the lives of the people we love that actually ends up being destructive. I mean, so like maybe the most pathetic example of this is what happens when someone we love dies or is dying and we can't be at peace with letting them go. We can't be at peace with them dying. And so we're, we're praying for them to be healed right up until the last moment. Once they die, we're praying for them to be, and I don't mean this figuratively. I mean, literally we're praying yeah. for them to be raised from the dead. You know, we, we just, we don't know how to let go. Well, we don't know how to be at peace with mortality. We don't know how to die well or to let people die. Well, we don't know how to be present to those who are grieving. And to me, all of that is a part of this, right? That all of that is yeah, it comes from that kind of restlessness. And 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 that's why we can't see death as a way of resting. Wow. Right? That when and scripture talks about death exactly that way many, many times, right? 
that you are yeah. gathered to your rest. I think you're gathered to your rest. And that the, I, I think it's, it's also tied to death though, figuratively, like how many ministries end up compromising themselves doing things that they thought they would ministers doing things they thought they would never do simply because they can't face that the ministry might be over or that its influence might decline or that they they're, they're hard up against a change they don't want to face. Hmm. And again, I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm being as clear as I can. I don't think that, we the goal here is a kind of bad satisfaction with our mortality or you know a you know t- what does any of it matter let's just you know eat and drink for tomorrow we die i mean i'm not i'm not calling for that kind of uh kind of easy resignation or which i think is a form of despair there's a kind of resignation that's a form of despair that simply says oh Things are what they are. Nothing can be done about it. And there's no there's no expectation in a God who does the impossible or openness to the prophetic. I mean, I, I don't want any part of that. That's a that's a kind of bad satisfaction, a kind of diseased, like a, a laziness instead of rest. But I, I am, I'm, I think, trying to stumble my way toward, I do believe there is a kind of moving rest, a way in which we can have deep longing for God openness to surprise that's not rooted in bad restlessness. It's not rooted in craving for limitlessness and isn't afraid of death, isn't afraid of limits. David, Chris, what are are you guys thinking? Yeah. I I mean, when you were reading the quote initially, um, and and I want to say this respectfully, uh, you know, to, you know, forefathers and stuff like that, but, I mean, one of my concerns with my own Pentecostal heritage and, and and the history of it is I'm not sure we've ever fully wrestled with how uh, I don't want to, it maybe sounds like a bad word to use about it, but about how actually thoroughly secular and modernist it was that although we were talking about the work of the spirit, we were framing it in very much the terms of our time. So when I heard you read this piece from 1913, it just sounds like, you know, I mean, at some level, Christianized capitalism. And I, I'm being, I'm not being as precise in my language as I want to be, but there's something I want. There's something I'm chasing after. And, and yeah. I couldn't help. I've got, I've got Acts 2 open in front of me. And, and I'm struck by, by the waiting that happens in there. Mm. And how everything that's going on in Acts two is very passive. The humans are thoroughly passive in this, in, in in all of these early verses. God is doing something. Yep. And and I had this 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 quote that I kind of pulled up that I thought, hey, I wonder if this will come up at some point today. But I'm, Andrew Root's work uh, on the church, where he's he's working with some of Charles Taylor and and, and Karl Barth in one of his recent books, he says this, and I, I really liked this for this conversation. He says the only way for the church to remember that it is not and cannot be the star of its own story is to wait. The church is the church of the living God only when it waits, and only in its waiting can the church love the God who is God by serving the world. And and, and I think I've, that's what I felt was lacking in so yeah. much of my own upbringing, and then also in that quote as well, is that, that 
we we were always the active agents. So you've got this double critique of you know the things we've already said about Moses and our our discomfort as you've been talking about with our finitude, but also our inability to be patient. Um, yeah. And so fascinates me as as a you know reading early Pentecostal work, given that tarrying and waiting was so much part of the conversation. We're right. actually really bad at it. We're actually constantly <laughs> trying to yeah. leverage God. Um, and, and, the, and it just struck me in listening to you talk there how much Acts 2 is, you know, God is in control. They're just there on the day of Pentecost. They're, you know, the, the sound comes when the sound chooses to come. The fire falls where the fire chooses to fall. And they speak languages as the Spirit chooses to let them. It's very yeah. passive from us as humans. I, I don't know if that reflection is helpful, no, that, that, but that was a, kind of... That's a really good point, David. That's, a, I mean, I think really vital. Chris? I, I know where you're going to go because you and I were just talking about this with reference to uh, to stuff at the end of Colossians 1 the other day. So, I mean, yeah, go go no, for no, it. You, you do it. I want to hear, hear how you worked it in. Oh, no, that's terrible. <laughs> that's terrible. Um, I, uh, I was going to say, I'm pulling up Colossians real quick, but I was going to say that it was hard for me to add anything constructive because what I was having was flashbacks to so many altar services that I was in, wherein that kind of restlessness, it's not, <laughs> I'll just say in my experience or in many experiences I've had, it wasn't even discouraged or viewed as something negative. I mean, it was seen as virtuous, like as a kind of being worked into that restlessness and hearing from people who lived with that kind of restlessness. Like, wow, look at that. I mean, you know what I mean? Um, I, the David, to your point about that, they're being passive and, um, and being acted upon. I mean, this is Chris, you're going to have to fill in a lot here. So, but, but we were talking about Colossians one, specifically the end of the, the end of the Christ hymn through the end of the chapter the other day on the phone. And that was part of what part of what Chris pointed out to me and helped me see was that like what we see in Christ's life is over and over and over again. The God who becomes incarnate and is acted upon, right? Um, and subjects, I mean, this, you know, reading the Christ hymn, right? He, he is, uh, you know, humbles himself to the point of death on the cross, right? Acted upon over and over and again. And he's, but, but it's precisely in that, that he transfigures these things, right? This, um, you know, this child in the darkness of Mary's womb, right? The light of the world shines forth. I mean, he transfigures that. It's in, um, I mean, obviously the cross, his death, how he claims it for himself. And so I think this just goes very well with with what we're already saying, this recognition that um, it, it's it's in that, that not that restlessness, but in that kind of recognition of our own limits back to John seven, where we actually become these kind of headwaters for the spirit going out. Yeah. Right. That it's in these spaces where Christ lays limb. So we're, fix, fix that, Chris. No, no, no. Well, I, that's exactly right. I mean, I think 
when we often miss this in English, but in Greek and in other languages, to suffer is to be passive. It is to be the object of, of, of the action of others, of nature, of God. So when the New Testament is talking about suffering, it, it really is talking about this. You are you are rendered the object of, right? Like you you are on the receiving end of what is happening. You're not you're not the you're not the causal agent. You're not the source. You are suffering it. Right. And in English for a long time we could even talk about that like um and it still shows up in our language in various ways, like if you will permit me, if you will suffer me to do this or that, right? What we see in Christ is that the spirit rests on the suffering body. The spirit rests on the suffering body. And the spirit acts in the body at rest. So the spirit rests on the suffering body. The spirit acts in the body at rest. And what, what if, if we schematize it like this, there's a kind of bad passivity associated with laziness, associated with, you know, the, in the story of the man who buries his talent, there's a, there's a kind of bad passivity that is despair, the sin of faithlessness in which you, you refuse to act at all out of a sense of meaninglessness or, or disregard. But there's the far greater danger is a bad activity in which you you try to take into hand things that are not yours to handle. We try to do that which is not ours to do. And it's crucial, like the spirit does not rest on bad passivity or bad activity, but paradoxically is at work when we integrate good passivity and good activity into one. And that's what we see in Jesus. Like uh, everybody knows this, but somehow we forget it, right? I mean, that, that when God comes among us, he comes among us as utterly dependent. And he is a fetus in a womb. He is a nursing baby. He is a child who has to be reared by his parents. When, when he matures, he matures in secret. I mean, he's alive most of his life. The vast majority of his life is lived in hiding, lived outside the awareness of his mission. I mean, at least for those who are around him, I'm, I'm sure he was aware of it, but he's not rushing to it. And when his ministry starts, there are ways in which he does initiate, you know, he does say this or that or act in this way. But if you read the gospels closely, most of what Jesus does, he does as things happen to him. Like his life is not a life with an agenda. Obviously, he has a calling. He has a sense of purpose. In the language of John, there's an hour that's coming. But just think about the Gospels. Think about his sayings, his miracles, his prophecies, his, his acts of mercy are almost always in response to having suffered something. He's not... There are those moments, right, where he will make an announcement, you know, Luke four, he announces what his kingdom is, but it happens to be because on that day he's reading the text of Isaiah and, and, and so on and so on. Right. We have moments like with Zacchaeus where he, 
he stops and says, you're going to invite me in or on the Emmaus road where he shows up to these two disciples. So absolutely there are moments in which he takes the initiative, but far and away, you know, it is a woman in the crowd touches him, right? A, a widow is, and her, her family are grieving the son she's lost and Jesus path crosses with this, this funeral procession. People send asking him, send word asking him to come and heal or tell him that Lazarus is dying or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that to me suggests that Jesus is living obviously with a sense of the hour is looming, but he's never ahead of himself. Like we, most of us live in anticipation of a future that's not yet here in such a way that it dislodges us from the present or anxiety about the past that's not quite settled. And so we can't be, again, can't be present to the unfolding of the future. So the past is still too present and the future is still too present for us to really be present to God and to each other. And that just never happens for Jesus. Like you never see him nostalgic in such a way that he can't respond to what's happening in front of him. And remarkably, even though he knows the cross is coming, he knows the hour is looming. He never, he never lets that kind of cancer this conversation that's happening right now with this person in this meal. And we do, I do. Like if I know something, even something mildly irritating is on the horizon, it steals from me the joy of this moment. That Jesus does not do that tells us something not only about God and God's patience, Right, David, to your point, I, I think patience is the key concept here. It certainly is for Paul, right? Long-suffering, patience, endurance. Like for Paul, this is the heart of the matter. And it is, it's God's heart. Like God is patient. But also it tells us something about the power of patience, right? That part of what ch- charged Jesus' life in such a way that the weakest and neediest people knew he could be trusted is that they didn't sense this bad restlessness in him. Like at some intuitive level, children, women, the diseased knew he's not ambitious in that way. He's not driven in that way. And that, I think, our our hearts are communing at that level. And that kind of bad restlessness, I think people sense it. They know Whatever you're doing with me is to satisfy that. And Jesus had none of that in him, which is why he was safe. It's why children weren't intimidated by him. It's why, you know, women, even women who were despised by others, weren't afraid to draw near to him and touch him, talk to him. Like that, that to me is, is a wonder and, and reveals this truth. David, do you want to talk about the patience dimension of this? Because I, I do think that, as I said, is, is key, key language. It's fascinating that Jesus is what appears to be his most stressful, uh, you know, the in the garden, right? Uh, I think that's a fair comment to say, at least in his recorded, uh, in, in oh, what we have a recording of Jesus. You know, the Jesus is, and I'm reading the, in the gaps here, but Jesus's aura is such that the disciples are sleeping. And um, so at least mm. whatever's going on, he's not, creating anxiety in those around him in the way that we might expect. You know, I have this ability when I'm 
when I'm restless, I draw everybody into panic, you know? <laughs> yep. That's exactly um, right. That's a really good point. Bill, you know, I what, thought what your you comment oh, on – no, I just was – your comment on, on suffering, I think, is it actually circles background to what we were saying in numbers as well, that – that if if you're living in a culture wherein you know good is limited, you know I use the example of honor. If I if I honor you, I take some from me. Suffering is always something acted upon you because you have been unable to preserve and defend yourself. Uh, and I think we, you know you see this all the time. People need to get the last word in things. They need to fight back. There's something profound in patience and you know and that old English translation of of long suffering which actually implicitly uh, tells us that somebody has chose not to fight something, has chose not to, to defend and struggle and, and wrestle uh, for something. And, and I don't, I, I, whenever I read Paul's takes on patience, there is this model of Jesus refusing to engage in a, a power game, really, uh, which I think shouldn't be lost in that conversation. Um, and not that you were losing it, sorry, but more, I no, think it's a no, really significant point. Yeah, man. Bill, so the last two things that you guys said are, it's just, it's, it's incarnational, it's in the soil. I think in a lot of ways, it's an obvious reading of Jesus's life. And I think because of those things, we miss it. You know, again, I'm always fascinated with the Christian phrase ordinary time and how every time I bring this up, every time I teach on ordinary time, which is right around now, every somebody at the door, a hundred percent of the years I've been pastoring says, and you know, when we're willing to be ordinary, we'll become extraordinary. And it's like, no. <laughs> no, you just missed every I, I, I'm terrible at preaching apparently. Like that's how I feel every time somebody does that. It's like we literally miss the ordinary because that's how we're thinking. And what you guys just described, this life that is available, accessible, this life of Jesus that says, I know somebody touched me because I felt power leave. Hmm. You know, this life of Jesus that breathes its last, that sits down at the well because it's weary, that goes to a desolate place to rest because he and his disciples are working like crazy. And then 5,000 hungry people show up and he feeds all of them. Like this is the life that the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is bringing to us. It's empowering us to live this life of perceived weakness. It's empowering us to look at those things that we're afraid of and say, we can, we can do this because it's how we love our neighbor. And so one of the things I was thinking about today when I was thinking about Sunday is whenever I'm going to preach on Pentecost Sunday, I am always aware of how people in my church culture think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I always have this like little voice on the back of my head that, you know, I need to I need to constantly be reframing what these gifts mean and how they operate. And I was looking today at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and I realized my sermon was set up differently than Paul talked about 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I, if I was Paul, I would have done 
First Corinthians 12 would be what First Corinthians 13 currently is. So I would have talked about love first, then gone off on the, you know, the teaching on the various gifts of the spirit and prophecy and tongues and how they operate in a service and in our lives. I would have done love first. It was interesting to me when I read it today that he interrupts his own flow with First Corinthians 13, and he opens 13 by saying, I'm teaching about tongues and prophecy, but if I have these things and I don't have love, then it's not the gifts of the Spirit that I'm operating in. Mm. And yep. then he talks about all the things that love is as a way of saying when we operate in the Holy Spirit, if it's not patient and kind and long-suffering, like I can even think of people that say things like, you know, God's called me to be a prophet and they're literally rejoicing in wrongdoing so they can say something, <laughs> so they can point it out. And and as I was thinking about all of this, laughing, crying, getting mad, getting hungry, <laughs> as I was thinking through it all, I realized 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 looks an awful lot like the three crosses on Good Friday. Mm. 1 yeah. Corinthians 12 and 14 only have significance because of 1 Corinthians 12 filling, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 filling them. And so I thought, if you look at 12 and 14 as the two thieves on the cross, and 13 as Jesus with his hand stretched out to both of them. Mm -hmm. uh, pro I believe it's tongues in 12 and prophecy in 14 or the other way around. And then Jesus in 13 reaching out to both of them. If you remove 1 Corinthians 13. You don't have the gifts of the Spirit. You have the usages of the Spirit. And whenever we use the Spirit, we become robbers and murderers in all kinds of ways. When 1 Corinthians 13 is reaching out to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it's filling it with love. You have the gifts of the Spirit. Things yeah. that we receive for the purpose they were given, which is to continue the work of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday in the earth, right? And so it it dawned on me for the first time, and maybe I'm late to the game, that from now on, whenever it comes around to teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, I feel like the fruit of the Spirit becomes the context for talking about the gifts of the Spirit, because that's the move Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. He interrupts himself to say, 1 Corinthians 13 here is reaching out to 12 and 14 because if it doesn't touch those two chapters, it's no longer the gifts of the Spirit. It's the way yeah. we're using God, the way we use material things, the way we use power, the way we use, 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 right? So yeah, yeah, that yeah. was kind of an interesting sort of visual for me that I'm probably going to do something with on Sunday. But just looking at the gifts of the Spirit that way, I feel like it's getting at what you guys are talking well, about. That's, that's, yeah, that's so good, Bill. That's such a powerful. And I think you could even say, not to stretch the analogy too far, but like 1 Corinthians 14 is the good thief. 1 Corinthians 12 is the bad thief. Or like there's a, there's, there's a lot there. I think that's such a powerful, powerful point. And, and, and as you've pointed out, like look at what Paul describes as love. Like it is every everything he lists there in First Corinthians thirteen is a list of what we do when people are not responding as we think they should. Come on, 
that's literally the definition of love is what do you do in response to people not being what you want them to be? And at the heart of that, again, is patience. It is love that looks like long suffering that isn't counting wrongs, that isn't delighting in the evil that comes to them because of their foolishness, that you recognize as foolishness, and so on and so on, right? That the if if we could recognize that is the love God has for us, right? Like God's love for us is more than it is anything else. It's patience with our process. It's patience with our with our growth, with our development, with our learning. And the power of the spirit rests on that, right? The power of the spirit rests on that life. Willie Jennings and and David can speak to this. Willie Jennings this I think is kind of the through line throughout his Acts commentary. Let, let, let me let me read this. Hold on just one second. This is um, from his postscript to that commentary that kind of sums up what I think to be. I'm working on a review of the commentary right now, so that's why it's top of mind for me. But he's reflecting on what he's learned in the study of Acts. And he says, I was surprised by the assertiveness of the Spirit. In Acts, the Spirit of God truly directs, speaks, and guides. If in the Gospel of Luke, God reveals the divine life in the Son, then in Acts, the Spirit of God is made perfectly clear, makes perfectly clear the divine desire. Luke Acts places us in the desires of God revealed in the Son's yielding to the Spirit. The desires of God revealed in the Son's yielding. His life of yielding becomes our life of yielding. God desires the interweaving of peoples, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, into one through the Son in the Spirit. From the Pentecost event to constantly binding disciples together in prison, to road journeys near and far, from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Troas to Rome, the God of Israel will wait no longer to join us to the divine life and to one another. There is an intentionality to the work of the Spirit that the church has ignored to its shame. The Spirit presses us to join with people we do not want to join with or imagine intimate life with. So what, what I'm seeing here, right, is that when we are wrong, God has to be patient with us. When we learn to be patient with God, God can work in us. Like that's the turn. As long as we're not mature, as long as we're not whole and healthy, God has to be patient with us. And he is. But when we are able to be patient with God and with ourselves and with one another, then the Spirit can press. The Spirit can press us into, into prayer, into intercession, into the prophetic, into works of mercy, in into setting continuing the project of Pentecost, like setting right what can be set right in hopes of the, in hopes of the end. So I think, Bill, I think you're putting your finger right on that. I know you're going to have to go soon, but I, I want to make sure we, we don't move too fast past that point because it's, gosh, I, I think it sets the world right for us. Like it helps us see kind of what is right and good about, the spirituality we've been given, but how to hold it in ways that are hmm. healthy that are mature and aren't, aren't, you know, driven by that kind of bad restlessness. I mean, it seems to, to me like we, 
I was thinking as you, as you were talking, Bill, and and I can only laugh, uh, Chris, because I was quite literally looking up uh, a quote from Jennings' Acts commentary as you started talking about it. But um, it seems to me that we always want Acts chapter two. Uh, we always we always want the Spirit falling upon us, but we live always in danger of Acts chapter eight where we're actually okay how do we how do we have this power uh, you know and that, that power question is, is significant in there and there's actually continuing with the Willie Jennings theme uh, his introduction to Luke Powery's uh, latest book on race and and the spirit uh, Jennings names what I just thought was a really fascinating challenge for us as the church. He says where we, we generally either see the spirit as some hidden energy in us that will bring to life our own intentions and efforts, or the spirit is a sort of liturgical lap dog who just livens up our worship when we need a bit more spectacle. And, and neither of those things are what you see happening in Acts 2. Uh, but the problem is the moment we engage into uh, an attempt to you know, do what Simon does in Acts 8, and we, have the, we want the power and we want the, the, the sort of strength in it, it starts to become really, really dangerous. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but, but to me, that's what I'm hearing floating around underneath this, that we replace what God's trying to do with our own desire for power. Well, this is why I love being, and I'm not, I'm not making a joke now. I, I love having a lot of my friends who pastor have other pastor friends. I love having theologians that are good friends of mine because you all have a very full and embodied way of explaining like, uh, like the details and the guts behind things that like are seen in like phrases or quick moments, uh, in, in my day to day. And so there's, there's a person I know who is famous. They, they, they've been here for a very long time and they're famous. For, they, they, they love teaching on the gifts of the spirit all the time. And one of the things they say is a famous line. I'm glad somebody in this church has got the gift of mercy because I'm a prophet. They say it all the time. I'm glad somebody in this church has got the gift of mercy because God gave me the gift of prophecy. And it's like, it's not the Spirit's gift of prophecy if you don't have mercy. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit's prophecy. We're not talking about restorative or redemptive prophecy. We're talking about a lot of false prophecy if mercy is not embedded in it. And I feel like, David, you just described like, like you, you, the, the way that theologians like you talk, you like put words on these aches that I feel on a daily basis. When somebody says something like that, I, my stomach is trying to come up with words that my brain is failing to string together. And you just described it so beautifully, but like at a very like pedestrian level, when I hear somebody start a sentence with just so you know, pastor, I speak my mind. So every time somebody says that it's always something horribly negative. Every time somebody says they have the gift of prophecy, it's usually because they now know that somebody in the church isn't living right, and they're all too excited to talk about it. And you just, like, I'm going to listen to what you said again when this podcast airs, because it really put a lot of good language on, like, that feeling I get when I hear that is, 
is the explanation you just gave there, which I really, I really appreciate like what the three of you do, because it really, it puts language. I feel like day to day pastoring, sometimes we don't have the language for how we feel. And I feel like you all help give, which may be dangerous, but you give language to to how we feel. And so I I love, but what you just said, uh, David was, was perfect. I thought. Chris, you're back. Kind of, but I still can't see or hear David. Oh, no. What's interesting on my screen now, Chris, while you're talking, is you're moving in slow motion while you're talking. I I think something has happened here, fellas. I really do. I think this is a thing. I think something has happened. I think we've accomplished something. (laughs) The spirit has moved, and it's destroyed the technology. Oh, yeah, of course we have. The spirit has moved. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You can't hear him, Chris, but you guys said the same thing. Um, I, uh, I, I think David and Bill with, with what y'all just said, I mean, what this, what this made me think of it since I've been in Colossians a lot lately is in Colossians, um, one 10, uh, uh, beginning in not verse 10, rather, uh, verse 11, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power so that you may have all endurance and patience joyfully. Um, long suffering is what a lot of translations will use there that kind of, you know, mm. this keeping with that language, David and Bill of, you know, power that this is this power of God produces long suffering. I think, I think that's the key, right, to what I was trying to say before. But when we're acting foolishly, when we're sinning, when we're acting at odds with our own natures and disobediently, God has to be patient with us. When we become patient with God and with each other, God is able to kind of press the point, right? God can act forcefully, powerfully. So that the more – that that's one way of saying it. But if you turn that on its head – where God is most forcefully active in my life, I'm most at peace and at rest. Like God's force in my life doesn't look like it's throwing me along. It doesn't look like it's um, evil is driven out, but the good is brought into orbit. It's brought into, into a kind of moving rest, right? A kind of circuitry that is both active and contemplative, right? It's both moving and not moving. It's paradoxically one and the other and one as the other. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's even changing a little bit, or at least it's highlighting some things for me a little bit, how I'm hearing, um, Peter's quoting the prophet, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a moments, dream dreams, right? When do you dream? Yeah. But also on men and women who are slaves, people who's, lives i mean are being acted upon that's a great point right and god is saying through the prophet here's where i'm at work yeah 
here's where my spirit's being poured out. Yeah, that's it right there. I think that's that's the message, right? That you have to live the kind of life. And this this is what we see in Philippians. You know, we see it in Mary's song. We see it in Philippians two, that the fullness of God comes to the lowliest life. Right, that he couldn't have come as a monarch or a magistrate because that life isn't low enough to hold the fullness. Mm. Right, it, it it is it's too high and mighty to actually bear the almightiness of God. And Mary says, right, you've looked on the lowliness of your servant. Therefore, all generations will call me blessed, right? Because the blessing of God is abiding. I mean, this is what Paul learns. You've been caught up into the third heaven, but you can't even talk about that. My strength is made perfect, not in the third heaven, but in your weakness. Like it's it, it abides in tabernacles in your in your weakness. And and so, right, as you said, like the dreams come when you're no longer fighting sleep. That's a good word. Mm-hmm. Why don't you say a last word, Brewer, and, and pray for us? Because I think that's a I think that's a really fitting place to like to hopefully everyone feels moved toward, you know, God give me that give me that kind of rest, that kind of good, the good integration of passivity and activity that we see, that we see in Jesus and the saints. I I think that, I think that's it, man. I mean, I just, that what you just said, I mean, because that's what I, that's what I feel, (laughs) you know, longing um, for that, hopefully not restlessness, (laughs) but yeah, yeah. But a, but a longing for it and a trust. And and here we have, and I feel so encouraged too, right, by this Pentecost text, because here we have witness to the fact that God is going to do it. There's grace for the waiting, <laughs> for the tearing, and the Spirit will do what the Spirit does, which is to incorporate us into the very life of Christ, to participate Amen. Um, all right. Lord, how incredible are your ways, oh God. I, I moved to gratitude and to thanksgiving. Lord, I think um, I, I think it's true that you call all of us, and, and I feel especially acutely right now that call to trust in you. To say Jesus is Lord, and I thank you that your lordship is such good news for us and for the whole of creation. Give us the grace to know our limits. Thank you for your patience and deliver us into patience. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.